We're going to be jumping into John uh, chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Once again. Or actually, this is, there are going to be two sermons we're going to do uh, from chapter 4. The first has to do with Jesus and his interaction with a Samaritan woman. Uh, The second part, which we'll do next week, has to do with the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in regard to that Samaritan woman and his interaction with her. So read these first, or hear these first uh, verses this morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard uh, that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although uh, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Uh, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If uh, you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have uh, to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go tell your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
in those days, the Jews were concentrated in two regions of what we call the Promised Land. One was Judea in the south, and the other was Galilee in the north. And Samaria lie between the two. Samaria was inhabited by a group of people called the Samaritans who were a mixed race. Partly Jewish uh, and partly uh, races that had come as a result of what was called the Assyrian captivity when Israel was carried off, the northern kingdom was carried off by the Assyrians into foreign lands. And they brought other people in who were not of Israel to inhabit the land at that time. And over the years, there had just been this, this Samaritan race that had been raised up that was partly Jewish and at the same time, partly what we might classify as pagan. So they had some, some common understandings of things of God with the Jews, but some very, very different beliefs in regard to particular aspects of things. The Jews looked down their nose upon the Samaritans. They had no dealings with them. They would not acknowledge them. They did things to the extent that they could to isolate themselves from Samaria to the degree that the normal activity of someone traveling from Galilee to Judea or Judea to Samaria was to cross over to the east side of the Jordan River and, and go that route north or south without going into Samaria, which made their travel much more extensive. Now, what you'll hear people say and what some of the commentators actually say about this is Jesus, for some reason, must have been in a hurry to get from Judea to Galilee. You can believe that if you want to, and that was the reason that he went through Samaria. But I would say that there was actually a much better and greater obvious reason, and the reason was that Jesus had at least one divine appointment to make with somebody in this land called Samaria. This particular woman. And it should speak some things to us. And one of those is this. is Jesus went way out of his way for one single person. That's how important this person was to him. And I don't know exactly all the details of your own testimony. But if you look at your, yourself, you would find this. That Jesus has really gone out of his way to bring you to himself as well. Jesus had a divine appointment on that day with this particular woman at that particular place, which was determined at the very beginning of eternity. I don't know if you even thought about this this morning as we're reading. See, the last account that we have in the Gospel of John of Jesus having encounter and conversation with an individual was Nicodemus. One of the most amazing things is you're talking about two people that are exactly on the opposite ends of the socioeconomic scale. 
Nicodemus was a Jew. The Samaritan woman was of mixed race. Nicodemus was high on the Jewish socioeconomic ladder. The woman was at the lowest, was considered to be the lowest of the low. Not only was she a Samaritan, she was also a woman. And not only was she a woman, she was a woman of ill repute. Nicodemus was a man. And Jewish men had little social interaction with women. Except outside, except within their family. The most amazing things is that this man was willing to have a conversation with a woman at the well. She was a woman, like we said before, not just a woman, a woman of ill repute. Nicodemus was considered to be a very moral person. This woman would have been considered by Jewish culture to be one of the most of immoral people. So one of the things that we need to glean from this is that Jesus knows none of these boundaries that, that people have erected that separate us socially, economically, and in any other way. We said this before, and that is this, and, 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 and if you can come up with a better example of it, please share it with me, but I, I can't come up with an example of a more diverse group of people in the history of the world than the Church of Jesus Christ. Both sexes, men and women, every race that you can think of. People today want to depict the church as being closed and not willing to receive people into it. But I would say to you the exact opposite is true. If you can come up with a better example of diversity in the world, as far as race and age and everything else you can come up with, please share it with me because I would like to know what it is, but I don't think you can come up with anything that comes close. The church knows no boundaries that are erected by men to separate people from one another. This is actually the only place in Scripture that the well of Jacob is mentioned. Now, we are told that the property was bought by Jacob in this area, very near Mount Gerizim. You've heard about that close to the town of Shechem. And we know that Jacob bought land there. We don't know from Scripture other than this one that Jacob actually dug a well there. But according to what we have here, he actually did do that. And if you go there to the promised land now, there is a spring at the base of Mount Gerizim that people acknowledge or believe is the, the well of Jacob. Even today, you can go there and drink water out of this place. Uh, 
I want to challenge us this morning with an idea, and the idea is this, is that every time anyone comes to faith, it is always the consequence of a divine appointment. Always. Absolutely everything, every detail, divinely orchestrated, not to just to make it possible, but possible, but to make it an absolute certainty. That whether you've ever thought about it or not, if you believe today, at some point in time, you had that divine appointment yourself. Where Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, came upon you. Now some of you, and, and I would imagine, and this is a very few number of you, cannot remember a time in your life when you were not a believer. I'm tempted to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but I'm not going to do that. But I would imagine that, that there, may be, there, there may not be anybody in this room that would say that. Most of you understand exactly what I'm talking about because you had that a divine appointment at some point in your life where you were confronted with a visitation by God himself. All of that was done according to divine appointment. God came to you. You didn't come to Well, you did, but only after he came to you. We should all be able to relate to the circumstances of this woman coming to faith because it's very much like what happened to us. It's what happened to me. It's very common vernacular in today's church for people to talk about, I came to Christ. With the emphasis being on my doing it. Well, the truth is, you did do it. But you only did it because God first enabled you to do it. I mean, we make that decision. There is a decision to be made. But what I'm telling you this morning is what Scripture teaches us. This is a very good example of it. It happens only because God has determined that it would happen. And he brings everything to fruition necessary to make it happen. Jesus has come this day to talk with this woman, not to make salvation possible for her, but to make her salvation absolutely certain. Remember, we have to keep things in context. And we studied not very long ago about the conversation that Jesus had to Nicodemus. And he said, you have to be born again before you see the kingdom of God. And he makes it very clear that for that to happen, the Holy Spirit has to fall upon you. You have to be born again by the Spirit. Not according to your own will, but according to the will of God. 
You understand that salvation coming to us cannot be through uh, any other mechanism than this because if it were true, then it would be a pride issue for us. Then we would have some ground to say, nana, 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 I believe and you don't. There's something good about me, there's something grand about me, and you're just a dirt bag. But there is something liberating in knowing that I have been born again by the Spirit of God. That is why I believe. It's not about me making him my Savior. It's about him being my Savior. Not making him Lord of my life. He is Lord of all already. Salvation is always a matter that comes down to one person and one encounter between that person and Almighty God. The Lord has come to us at different times in our lives. The majority of us had to make somewhat of a mess of our life before that time came, before we were actually ready to receive Jesus. Like I said before, there may be a few people in here that don't remember a time when they didn't believe, that it was just the believing for them was just a natural thing that goes back as far as they can possibly remember. Notice here that Jesus started the conversation. Not her. Let me tell you, if it had been left up to her, there wouldn't have been a word uttered that day. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't talk to Jews. In particular, Jewish men did not talk to Samaritan women. Jesus started the conversation because if there was going to be a conversation, he was the one who had to start it. Give me a drink. I imagine that she was absolutely shocked for a number of reasons, and one of those is this was a Jewish man that was even talking to her. Even acknowledging her presence, the normal thing would be to totally ignore her as if she didn't even exist. And how dare he command me? <laughs> Jesus doesn't say pretty please. Would you, would you please, please, please get me some water? I want to challenge us with another idea this morning, and that is that there actually is a third party present in this conversation. It's not just Jesus. It's not just the, or Jesus and the Samaritan woman. There's another there. The Holy Spirit. See, Jesus is speaking the words, but the Holy Spirit is pressing them home. 
Jesus and the Holy Spirit are working in perfect unison in order to bring the sinner to where she needs to be. That, my friends, is always the case. Jesus gets into this dissertation about living water. If you know Jesus, you've tasted it yourself. You understand that in nowhere else is there life. There are no substitutes for it. It is the water that gives us life. And it's the water that sustains that life eternally. It's funny, as you look through the history of the world, you'd find that there have been legends all through the history of mankind about, uh, you know, this special spring of water located somewhere that if you drink it, you would have eternal life. You may not realize it, but one of the main reasons that Alexander the Great went so far uh, to the east from Persia was because he was looking for that fountain of youth. Many of us know the stories about Ponce de Leon coming to Florida back in, uh, in the late 1400s for the purpose of looking for that fountain of youth. That's why we all learned in the history books, I don't know if you realize it or not, but there's some historical evidence today that that really is not the primary purpose why, why he came here, but it's what we always learned, right? And you can go up to, uh, to St. Augustine and visit the Fountain of Youth, right? The tourist attraction there. But we know this. We know that this idea of living water is Christ is that living water. It's the living water that our troubled souls long for, that our troubled souls thirst for. It's the only water that will satisfy the human soul. First, the woman thinks that he's talking about literal water, that this spring has some kind of magical ability to provide people with eternal life. Before she can receive it, she must first come to understand why she is in need of it. So Jesus tells her to call her husband, knowing full well what the rest of the story is already. He's not doing this so he can be enlightened to her lifestyle. He already knows every detail of it in a way that she doesn't even know it and understand it. 
He asks her that or says that to her for her benefit. She has had five husbands and is now living with a man who is not her husband. Someone that I would imagine that not only the Jewish community would consider to be extremely immoral, but possibly even according to Samaritan standards, she probably would have been considered to be way low or way high on the immoral scale. We were talking a few weeks ago about, in our Bible study, about the culture that is just evolving in the United States and across the world today that is so contrary to so many things and ideas and beliefs that we have in common with one another. Sometimes I get online and you have to wonder how truthful a lot of things you get online actually happen to be statistics and things like that because we know that there are a lot of people out there that are very, very willing to slant numbers this way or the other just to make people think something they want them to believe. But we all understand that sexual morality has changed a great deal or an understanding of what sexual morality is has changed a very great deal and seems to be changing more and more with every day that passes. Most of us grew up in a land where stuff like this was almost unheard of and it certainly was frowned upon by the vast majority of people. Understand this, the young people today are growing up in a culture that actually encourages this kind of thing. The world that our children, our grandchildren are growing up in is very different than the world that we grew up in. It's almost like night and day difference. Just to give you an idea of, of kind of where we're at, I got online the other day and again I looked up some statistics and again you don't know how real they all are and that sort of thing, but this particular site, they, they're saying, and this is, this is a survey uh, that they did with men and women in regard to their, their sexual habits. And according to this website, both men and women are willing to admit that in their lifetime they've had seven or more sexual par partners. The worst state in the United States in regard to this particular Statistic in Louisiana, the average woman says 15.7 sexual partners in her lifetime. In Utah, on the other hand, was on the other end of the scale, it's 2.6. 10% of women admit to having 15 sexual partners in their lifetime. 15 or more. 2%, 50 or more. 32% of them actually admit to often lying about it when people ask them. 
and they change their story depending upon who they're talking to. If they're trying to impress someone, the number goes up. <laughs> and if not, then the number goes down. Many admit that uh, the number is either more or less based upon who they happen to be talking to at the time. Who they're trying to impress. But I want to drive home this point, and that is these statistics are very significantly lower for those who consider themselves to be religious. What I'm telling you here is that by today's standards, the Samaritan woman might be considered a prima donna. Today, the Samaritan woman and her lifestyle would have been celebrated by today's woke culture. We hear these things, they amaze us because it describes a world that's so very different than the one that we knew. That we would have to be blind and dumb not to understand that this is a reality that we're living in. It's all over the place. It's so much in your face, you can't deny it. And people want to credit it to different things, but it's what I would say to you this morning, this is, this is what you see when people turn their blind eye and turn away from God. The woman's not ignorant of the fact that God had promised to send the Messiah, the long-awaited one who would deliver the Jews. And I guess she's assuming that would include the Samaritans as well. They believed that this one, this deliverer would come and deliver Israel from all of its enemies and return it back to the days of glory of Solomon. And of David. Few of them understood that they had a far worse enemy, and that enemy was themselves. Because of their sin. The sin within. And I want to assure you this morning that you're far worse than you think you are. God is the only one that sees us. For who we really are. We might th we have secrets from other people. We even have secrets from ourselves perhaps. But we have no secrets from him at all. He sees it all. He hears it all. He knows it all.
One of the biggest mysteries to each one of us should be me. Why me? Why me? You ever think about that? If you don't, you ought to. I would encourage you to. See, I would imagine after this encounter, the, the Samaritan woman's leaving there, and, and, she, and she's, she's running through this mystery over and over again. And I would imagine one of the primary things on her mind is, why me? Why would he come to me? The lowest of low. should be the way we all see it. Because if we all don't see it that way, we just don't know who we are. Really. The Jews looked upon the Samaritans as the chief among sinners. They had partial truths, but they, their, their religion was built around a bunch of fabrications and lies on top of the truth. And let me tell you something this morning. I can't tell you why. Matter of fact, maybe some of you I'm kind of confused about. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I'm telling you, if, if you're not just absolutely dumbfounded and confounded by the idea that you are a saved person in Jesus Christ, then you simply, and, and it's all by God's grace, then you simply just do not understand. You don't have a clue who you really are. The person you think you are does not exist. You are not worthy. She was not worthy. I'm not worthy. None of us comes close to being worthy in any way, shape, or form. In every one of our cases, God has chosen to love that which is otherwise unlovable. Every one of us should be able to see ourselves reflected in this picture of the Samaritan woman at the well with Jesus. Blown away by the awesomeness of the forgiveness and the love of God that falls upon dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinners like us. That God would lay claim to us and make us children of the living God. The greatest mystery of all. 
外面。